Today's episode of State of the Game is brought to you by Audible, the internet's leading provider of spoken audio entertainment. For a free trial and a free audiobook download, go to audiblepodcast.com forward slash SOG. That's audiblepodcast.com forward slash S for State, O for Of, G for Game. For a free trial and free audiobook download. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 28 of State of the Game, the golf podcast that talks about stuff that matters. My name's Rod Murray, and on this episode, the stuff that matters is pretty much the same stuff that always matters, but today, we're very privileged to be discussing it with a very special guest. I'll introduce our mystery lady in just a moment, but first, let me say hello to my regular co-hosts, blogger, writer, critic extraordinaire, Jeff Shackelford in the US. Hello, and welcome to you, Shack. Thank you, Rod. Good to be here. Yes, good to have you aboard. And player, course designer, commentator on the game, Mike Clayton here in Australia. Clayton, always good to speak with you. Looking forward to chatting with Judy. Thank you, Rod. It'll be good fun, I think. Yes, I think it will be good fun too. And I've given a hint there as to uh, who our guest might be. I mentioned in the uh, in the intro there, pretty special guest for us today. We've been lucky in recent episodes. We've had some fantastic people take part in the podcast. Mike Clayton, uh, sorry, Matt Goggin, Jeff Ogilvy, Jeff Silverman. They've made some really wonderful contributions. But I'm willing to bet that even they would agree with me on this. We're yet to have a guest with the dignity, poise and class of TV commentator and analyst, Judy Rankin. Judy, welcome to State of the Game. Fabulous to have you along. Well, thank you. That's quite an introduction. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and still understated, I would say. Fabulous work. Oh, I don't think so, but thank you very much. Not at all. Judy, can I just open by saying I was really, really keen to have a chat to you after we got the um, we got the coverage that you were on, on of the Solheim Cup down here in Australia, and I thought you did a magnificent job. It was a... An extraordinary week, and there were a couple of incidents along the way, but you handled all of it with such dignity and whatnot in the TV booth there. Tell us a little bit about that week and um, and your thoughts on sort of what unfolded there, because obviously there was a couple of issues, weren't there, during the week amongst the players? Yeah, um, you know, I just, um, for my part, uh, of course you root for your country and you root for your team, and I captained a couple of teams, so I really do root for my team, and I, I know what um, what goes into it, and um, the emotional investment, but when you spend so much time uh, uh, around um, the tours, and in this case, the uh, the women's tour, um, you know you have pretty good friends on both sides, and um, uh, I, you know, the global nature of golf, and um, in particular, uh, oh, women's when- golf, just um, uh, you have a connect with everyone. And so, you know, in, in many ways, um, I, I feel close to a lot of players and not just those on the U.S. team. And, um, you know, sometimes you just have to um, say what you think is the right thing, um, even even if it might not necessarily uh, be something that shows your team in the very best light. And that happened to me a couple of times um, in the Solheim Cup matches. Uh, and I'd, uh, I, I, I think the players that play for the U.S. are, you know, extraordinary players and people, and um, I think they're great sportswomen. Um, but there were just a couple of incidents that you, uh, you know, you had to say, you know, you, you can't get um, so excited or so emotionally invested that you don't do the right thing. You have to do the right thing. 
We might come back to it. There's a few issues, isn't there? But one of them that strikes me, that, that sort of international team match play golf is so popular these days and it's such a fantastic uh, sporting spectacle. It needs a little bit of niggle between the players, as we call it here in Australia, but it needs to be balanced, doesn't it? And sometimes when that gets a bit out of whack, it needs somebody to step in and say, that's a bit out of whack or over the top. Let's maintain <laughs> the dignity required. I felt like that was kind of the role you played in some of those incidents there. Well, I hope so. Um, you know, the funny thing is, though, the fans like to, um, and particularly the fans on all the social networks, um, uh, they love to have something like little incidents that happen to talk about. Uh, so in some ways, it is that old bad story of, um, you know, any news is um, is good news. <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah, exactly, and you're right. And hasn't the world changed with social media? We might come to uh, to some of that as well, Judy. Of course, 1962, you turned professional at the age of 17, or joined the LPGA. Was there much reaction to that at that time? We, of course, have seen Lexi Thompson in the last couple of years uh, have to petition the LPGA to get a start at the age of 17. Lydia Ko is facing the same thing shortly, and I'd like to get your thoughts on her. But what was the reaction when you turned professional at the age of 17 in 1962? Did it make headlines, or was it just bye bye? kind of made headlines but it was such a different world then um i you know i i was i was more or less on my own i wasn't traveling um with family or with um you know with a whole team of people and uh in fact i ended up that first year that i was 17 i only played um nine nine tournaments but um you know i ended up eventually um traveling with another player and a couple of other players as a matter of fact and it was a way more low-key thing than it is now when people have an entire team of people who uh go with them so i mean you could probably start at any age now because it seems half the time your entire family goes on the road with you <laughs> uh so it was a it was a it was a very different situation and um probably if i could could have done it over again or or my dad or whatever you know, I wouldn't have done it at 17. I would have waited um, a year or two. But um, at the time, really, uh, money was very tight. And um, not that you thought you could go to play, go play the women's tour and make any money, but um, a company came forward, and it was the old First Flight Golf Company, and offered to sponsor me if I wanted to go play the tour. And so I found myself... Um, playing the tour and not really making any money um i I did make money in somewhat short order i started probably when i left the tour of the year i was 17 i didn't come back until well into the year when i was 18 but from then on i pretty much paid my way Mm -hmm. won 26 tour events in your career judy so you could play and you obviously had the upstairs game as well i mean once you get to that level it's much about the mind isn't it what was your approach to the game 26 times a winner that's pretty impressive stuff I don't know. You know, I was. It was hard for me to learn to win. I I, I actually um, tried every um, way known to all golfers um, to figure out how to lose, and I pretty much put all of them into practice because um, 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 I was a wife and a new mom um, before I won for the first time. So I went through. Um, I went through. You know. Five and a half, six years, I think, before I um, won for the first time. In fact, um, my my boy was a was a just a a little baby. And what had happened was I 
I kind of gave up on the idea of winning. I just knew I was a pretty good money maker, and I, that would be good enough. And when I, I guess in some sort of way that took the pressure off me, and I won for the first time, and uh, and then it got better after that. Mm. Clates, does any of that ring a bell with you? I mean, you didn't start your life on tour, did you, with a team of dietitians and sports psychologists and all those sorts of things? It was a different time when you turned professional as well. I imagine that some of what Judy's talking about there makes sense to you and then what you see today and the differences with how people do it these days. Well, nobody did really. And the, the thing that resonated with me was that we went back and played the senior tour in Europe a few years ago and apart from obviously the, the really top players, Sevi and Langer, those guys made a lot of money and the next level below guys like Howard Clark and Sam Torrance and Ken Brown, Mark James, they also made good money. But the rest of the guys, you know, we went back 20 years later and we sort of, you sit around the dinner table, do you guys ever make any money out of this? And of course, no, I mean, none of us really did. We did okay. We, you know, you bought houses and they sent their kids to school and they paid their way. But when they walked away, they certainly didn't have anything to go on with the rest of their lives. They got, you know, they all had to go and do other things, which mm. revolved around, you know, playing the senior tour or getting into commentary or TV or golf course design or lots of other things. But, you know, it's a much different era now. You can, you can clearly make enough money now to survive uh, your post-life golf without having to work, which is perhaps a little dull thing. It's much more fun working than not working. I'm not sure. I've never tried the not working. It looks like a lot of fun when you when you don't get the chance to do it, Clates. Judy, sure it isn't. Judy, does all that sort of make sense? What's your take on the, the difference in the game? Has it been good for the game, the amount of money in the game? And, and women's golf isn't uh, as flush with cash as men's golf, obviously, is. But you've still, got, uh, you've still got lots of the women making very decent livings out of the game. Has that been good for the game overall, do you think? Well, I think it is, and you know, um, it's been said many times before. But um, for all the ridiculous money in the game, um, everybody does start from scratch every year. And um, you know, if if you have built some sort of um, brand and persona and this and that outside of what you do with tournament winnings, then that's another story. But when you talk about these great amounts of money that people earn on the PGA Tour. Um, I would say less so on the LPGA Tour, but you know we're still talking uh, $2 and $3 million a year on the LPGA Tour for the best players. Um, I think, you, you know, in a way you have, you have to give it to the players. You have to say that that is good and good for the game because they all start from zero every January. Uh, I guess the PGA Tour won't be starting in January any longer, so <laughs> no. I, have to, I have to get my mind right for that. But um, so... In that way, I don't think the money harms the game at all, um, and I and I do think that the vast amounts of money uh, they have to do um, with fan interest, and uh, I think they also have to do in a strange sort of way uh, with the the dollar amounts that golf gives to charity. I I, I think all those monies somehow they. Um, one inspires the other is what I'm trying to say. Mm. It, the difference in the purses between men's and women's golf, do you think it makes them different um, for the players themselves? Jack Nicholas has said, I think, more than once that the worst thing that ever happened to professional golf was the all-exempt tour because instead of players needing to be hungry every week to win and, and, and really put on the best show and, and all those sorts of things, you had this situation develop where you could be a media, a middle-of-the-road player and make a decent living without ever needing to win, just 
you know, a few top 10 finishes, top 25s, keep your card, and everything would be nice. Uh, there's probably less of that on the LPGO, and I wonder whether that does anything to the product or the way the game's played, Judy, do you think? Well, I, I, I mean, I, I think Technicals ha- had and has a point, um, no doubt. And, and in the, the one way I would say that that stands out, um, let's, let's go to some of the better players in the world and uh, what's different from his time and my time to now is you don't have to play very much. Mm-hmm. I mean, you really, you may be working hard, and it is an intense and... Um, um, the the playing field is a big deal and it takes a lot but the fact is there's a lot of players only playing 15 or 16 weeks a year Mm -hmm. a year and when you go back to other times and when you go back to my time for instance the only way you could earn a living and make it work was to play, 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 play. And that's what your tour needed to do. And the truth is that's still what your tour needs you to do. But it's not necessary anymore. They've made it easy to opt out. And um, uh, I think there are, a lot of, there are a lot of tournament sponsors that surprise me that they continue with their strong support when they don't. I don't think they get what they deserve. There's, well, there's, And there's impacts of that around the rest of the world too. Our own tour down here, Clayton, suffers in that way too, doesn't it? I mean, player, Nicholas and Player, they used to come down here in Palmer and play because there was a contract with a club company and they made some money out of it. Now you need to pay the players massive amounts of money, appearance fees to come in because they can afford not to come away. So it's changed not just the week-in, week-out tour in America, but what happens around the world, hasn't it, Clayton? So I think you were in a bit of a yeah, discussion. Yeah, that, that, I, I think that's a, that's a really big issue in, in golf. Um, and it's a, it's a little bit of an issue in women's golf, and it's certainly a very big issue um, in, in men's golf. And I, I, I quite honestly don't know the answer to it because it's, it's one of those stories where the horse may be out of the barn. Well, yeah, it kind of is, isn't it? It's, uh, we're facing it this year, Judy, with the new wraparound schedule of the PGA Tour. We're going to miss some of our uh, locally very well-known players, not particularly big names in the US, but they need to stay in the US to start their year to keep their card for 2014-15. They won't be able to play the right. Australian Open and the PGA. So, so yes, there's, uh, there's impacts <clears throat> all around the place. Sorry, yes. Rod, yeah, I want so to will ask that force you... changes? Oh. I'm sorry. No, go ahead. I just wondered if that would force changes in in your schedules um, down the road. Mm. The problem being, Judy, that we really only have a small world. It's so competitive internationally because Australia is is in the same basket as Asia, uh, China, some of the back end of Europe. Um, There's this tiny little window at the end of the year where everybody else apart from the PGA Tour and the European Tour has to try and stage golf tournaments and it's already so tight. We can't have things in the middle of the year. It's our winter down here, and it wouldn't work. I see. It's, yeah, it's, look, it's difficult, but not to say that there won't be a solution at some point. Shaq, you were about to, uh, to ask Judy something. Well, I, I want to get back on the topic of yes. uh, young golfers because one thing that, that comes up a lot on our show, whether we're talking about some of these uh, – whether we're talking about distance or the some of the rules, um, uh, brouhaha's we have break out from time to time, is that, that golfers are younger, and it's a younger game. And I'm I'm wondering, Judy, what you attribute um, this rise of young golfers to? Because it used to be that you had to have a certain amount of seasoning, and now people are better at a younger age. And I'm I'm curious what you most attribute that to, and if you think it's a good thing for the game. Uh, well, I, I think I think there are a few things, and I'm sure there are a few that that I don't know, but. Um, 
um, one thing is uh, competitions um, are so readily available um, mm. when you're a when you're a young junior growing up or when you're a a, a young teenager and there's just it, competitions are readily available you you can um, I, I guess one of the terms that I like and am familiar with is you can travel your game pretty young and see if it's mm. any good. Um, and I think that has, has helped a great deal. Um, I think, and this started back, this probably started back with Tiger um, in, in, that, in that era of being a kid. But you now have had um, from Tiger on now to very young kids who have seen the best players in the world as often as they want to see them mm. on television. Mm. And I think being able, uh, and I think children are such great mimickers that if they have any interest at all um, in watching in that sort of way and the way those things have all grown into um, um how would I put this? More visual teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it is. I think it is bringing kids along at a very young huh. age. I, I think with girls, and the one thing to remember is, you know, physically. I'm not. Maybe, maybe emotionally, mentally too. But physically, you know, girls kind of reach their growth by the time they're around 16. Mm. And I, I, I mean, I raised a son, and I am a. I, I have seen oftentimes where boys actually grow until they're 20 years old. Um, I, I know my son did, and I've seen a lot of boys who, you know, physically just get bigger and stronger until they're, you know, at the very end of their teenage years. So with a lot of these young girls, they've they've become physically strong and, and maybe, you know, the size that they're going to be by the time they're 15 or 16 years old. Mm. Because, pardon me, the number. So five. those are my thoughts. Yeah, the number five ranked yeah, player. Yeah, no, those in the are world. great. I've, I've never the television component of it is fascinating because you're so right. When you're young, it's amazing how you can impersonate uh, swings and and body language of players and absorb that. And uh, I'd never really uh, contemplated how much of an impact that probably does have. Well, I mean, I grew up and I hardly ever saw a professional player. Yeah. As a child, um, and as a a very young teenager. Um, I saw Patty Berg give a clinic when I was either seven or eight, and that was the first professional golfer I ever saw. Mm. A first woman, other than the pro at our, you know, the place I played. So um, um, it, it it was these generations um, that really, starting when when Tiger, uh, around that age, was a little boy, mm. um, was about the time that golf became so prevalent and um on television so i think i think it made a big difference and um and and i think players like tiger woods um uh players like nancy lopez players like beth daniel Kari webb annika for all these kids to be able to see those people um they because they're they they they're one up in the beginning 
What do you mm. reckon about that, Clates? We've discussed this before, haven't we? The, the changes in technology and coaching and the improvements in coaching and all the equipment that's available to, to youngsters today wanting to learn. What do you think about Judy's thoughts there about TV and just the, the visual impact of watching good golf swings, top-class golf swings at an earlier age on television? We see so much more golf on television in Australia than we ever did. What, what would you have seen on TV growing up, Clates? Maybe well, the, the only golf we saw on TV was when they televised the Australian Tour and, and they used to put a camera on the 14th tee and televise the last five holes. So... For two hours, you just watch groups going through the 14th. But uh, the, the only time we saw pro golfers play, as Judy said, was when we had to go to the tournaments and watch them. So the first golf on TV here was really the CBS Golf Classic. The British Open came on, I think, in 1974 was the first time they showed the Open. Gary Players opened there. But it was a CBS Golf Classic came on, and they, and they showed that at the, the biggest TV station has showed that at 9 o'clock on Wednesday night. I mean, it's unfathomable that you would have a golf show from America on the main network at 9 o'clock on Wednesday night. So that was the only time we saw, saw them swing. We saw their pictures, but we didn't see them actually swing. And I, I think that one of the biggest changes is the camera. So you can you, you can see what you do. Mm. I mean, I'd say I, I would go and practice for I mean, I, the first time I saw my swing. And a picture was... I think I was 16, so I'd played golf madly for four years without having a clue what I did. I, I mean, I thought I knew what I did, but like Peter Thompson once said to me, he said, wow, he said, I saw my film on swing once. I thought I swung like Sam Snead, but it was nothing like it. It was horrible. <laughs> <laughs> he said, I've never watched it again, which of course was completely ridiculous given it was Peter Thompson had one of the great actions of all time. But. Indeed. Does that resonate with you, Judy? Can you, how did you come to the game and what was your sort of early instruction? How did one find the game and to turn professional at that time? Well, you know, my my father mostly taught me, who was a very poor golfer, but just really liked it. And it was a kind of trial and error method. And so I'm, I'm one of those um, last players who had a kind of homemade-looking swing, although I think I did a lot of things right, but it was still a homemade-looking swing um, because it was um, – you know, it was it was the way he saw it. it I, I will tell you one funny story when you're learning the game by experiment, it, which is um, I've always I, I've been a, a very flat swinger, and um, as a result, you know, kind of a kind not I don't want to say a picker, but kind of a sweeper, and um, uh, certainly not a deep divot taker. And my father would be so frustrated because he would say, the earth is 90-some thousand miles around and you can't hit it. (laughs) (laughs) But it was the whole idea of, um, even though he had this German mind that kind of studied the swing, um, he didn't realize how hard with my swing plane it was to do that. And uh, so that's, that's part of the trial and error um, of learning the way I did. And um, I, I think there are certain truisms now that just help people to to, to learn the game, uh, help the talented people to pick it up pretty easily. I, I don't think the game is learned easily by the masses. Uh, evidence would suggest that you're right about that, Judy. If you had to be good at the game to be able to, to be allowed to play it, it would be a pretty small game, wouldn't it? There would be about three courses in the whole world. <laughs> and then yeah, about yes, a thousand right. people playing them uh, would be about it. Are you one? Were you fascinated with the swing over over your career? Of course, you're in television now. That's why we mo- we mostly know you. That's how I've come to know you is through your television work and television commentary. Are you one who likes to study the swing? Do you watch those swing analyses that Peter Costas and others do, and, and fascinated with all that sort of stuff? Or do you think the game is about different things to the physical movement of the club? Um, 
I am I am very, I'm fascinated with with the swing. I'm fascinated with what I think has is different um, in the modern swing and how it's taught um, versus you know what I knew a long long time ago. Um, and and I'm I, I I clearly see some things that work really well and some things that only work for a particular individual. Um, I do. I, I do like the fact that there still are a few individual kind of players. Um, you know, even something as somewhat extreme, some might say, as, as a Jim Furyk, um, and, and a self-taught person like Laura Davies, who still hits the golf ball as well as she ever did. She may not play as well as she ever did, but she hits it just as well. Um, because I'm, I don't like, I don't like the, uh, the over technical golf swing um, that is um, forever in training. I, I think it's a. I think it's. I, I think there is science to the game, but it is definitely an art and a science. And the art part is uh, the part that should be you. Mm. Well, Sevy was probably the the best known example of that, wasn't he? Clay? He was a true artist, wasn't he? There was a lot of science in what he was doing, but he didn't know what it was. He yeah. just saw um, it and, and did it. That's right. Judy, let me ask you about Mickey Wright, because you look at the, the what little bit of film there is of her on YouTube that kind of reinforces was it Ben Hogan's view that she had the best swing you'd ever seen? Yeah, I played some with Mickey. Um, there are there are players I never did see play, but I played some with Mickey and. Um, um, on a rare occasion, I'm in touch with Mickey to this day. Um, she uh, she was an extraordinary swinger of the club. You know, she was nearly six feet tall, and um, um, it was the little old, really what we call little old, if you could see them today, Wilson blades. Yeah. And um, Mickey could take a two and three iron and rocket it high in the air, which there was not a woman who could do that, and a lot of men couldn't do it. Um, so there was something that was just, you know, absolutely sound about her golf swing. Uh, and she was the great player that she was being an okay putter. I wouldn't ever call her a bad putter, but if I was to say it stood out, um, I, there was nothing about her putting that, that stood out except, you know, the thing that stands out to me now is I never saw her change putters. She always had a bullseye. Always. Um, but, uh, she, uh, and I was back to the thing we were talking about, pictures and video and this and that. Mickey, Mickey believed, I guess, and still believes, um, that still pictures of your golf swing would not help you, that they were almost damaging. Mm. Yeah. That's interesting, isn't it? That. Mm. Yeah. Huh. Do you see a player out there now that's better than she was? Oh, you know, I believe Mickey would have been great in any and every era. Yeah. Um, I never, no one, including Mickey, <laughs> has ever seen her hit a golf ball with any of today's equipment because she just doesn't. Mm. When she does hit golf balls, which I think she still does on a somewhat regular basis, she doesn't play, but she hits balls. It's still with the clubs that she was very successful with. So it would be amazing to see what she could do with um, today's equipment and um, do I see that anyone that's, you know, as good as she is now? Um, I don't know. There's a couple There's a couple of people that are pretty interesting to me if you give them a little experience and a little age. 
and I, I think she's a serious enough girl because she's an awful fun-loving kid, but Jessica Corda has a real chance yeah. to be something extraordinary, I think. Um, I, um, she's got I, a pretty good golf swing already, mm. and she can hit the ball high, high, high. And I think that is so valuable in the game and in the women's game. I, I played with her a little bit down here. She um, came down at the start of here to play the Australian Open and spent a week in Melbourne, and we played at Victoria, where Jeff Ogilvy is a member and where I think you played the Colgate tournament. Yeah. I was staggered at some of the long lines she hit. I, you know, I know you spoke about her at the Solheim Cup, kind of uh, reflecting on that ability to hit long lines with the way Mickey Wright hit them, and I, I was yeah. staggered at how strong and how fast she hit the ball. I find her kind of a fascinating player. I mean, she's only 20 years old, so I don't know if when she's 28 she she might be a real world beater, but I think that is a possibility for her. Very free spirit, isn't she, um, aside from all Yeah, that, she is very much so. Yeah. I, you know, her parent. I, I've met both of her parents, and um, they apparently have just kind of um, let her grow up and blossom, and... Um, it's a great relationship with all of them, but she uh, she is, um, you know, out there um, taking care of herself and doing things, and, mm. and they, they trust her to do that. And so um, I think she's, and I think she's maturing, um, you know, quite nicely. I, I, I like the girl. I like the player. Mm. Um, and, I, and I will be fascinated to see what happens with Lydia Coe. Well, <laughs> fifth-ranked player in the world at 16, Judy. If I'd said that to you 10 years ago, that there'll one day be a 16-year-old girl who'll be the fifth-best player in the world, would you have believed that could happen? Uh, you know, I, probably not. I would have believed the 16... I would have thought it would have been Michelle Wee if mm. you'd have said that. Mm. Um, but this... Uh, this kid has such a way about her, and she has a golf game that is just kind of um, from point A to point B, just make the same swing you made the last time. And I have to give this guy, Wilson, whom I've never met, an awful lot of credit mm -hmm. for everything about her golf game. It's just it's well-rounded. Um, every now and then she's extraordinarily long. They measured a tee shot of hers in Canada this year at 290. Mm. And um, and it was not a hard, fast golf course. She was playing with Suzanne Patterson, and she just ripped it right on by her. Which, which is pretty remarkable. Um, and, and yeah, and so I'll be really interested to see what happens with her. Um, I know I uh, after after she was second at Evian, I said, you know, she looks like a girl who came to the course with her bag on her shoulder and said could i play and they said well no we're having a tournament and she said well could i play in the tournament <laughs> that's what she reminds me of so she doesn't when you talk um, but to i her, like her very much yeah when you talk to her judy she's very much a teenager i interviewed her last year i think she's matured enormously both physically and emotionally since last year when she first won in america but i remember talk, talking to her last year and every second word was like you know, she's a teenager, yeah. oh, and like I did like this, like, and it's like it's like talking to a thirteen-year-old. It's like actually, I'm talking to a thirteen-year-old. She just happens to have right. won a tour right. event, and and that's changed. Just on Jessica Corder, Clates, I think you had the best um, the best analysis of Jessica Corder. I think you said she's taller than you, she's better looking than you, and she hits it further than you, if I recall. Wasn't that the take from the week that she spent in Melbourne? <laughs> well, I'm not sure. <laughs> she, um, 
the year before she came down duty and won at Royal Melbourne, as a kid, I organised a caddy for her, so, so, which was important on that golf course because she'd never played it before and she, and she had a, a friend of Jeff Ogilvy's actually who was a, who played a lot of golf there. And, but at 18 to win on that golf course and to win in a six-way playoff was, was extraordinary, I thought. And, and while yeah. she won this year, she's had a, a really consistent year and played you know, incredibly well. But um, my take on her was that you know, it's such a big, powerful game. Sometimes they take a bit longer to control. The way Lydia Coe plays, she, she's not, you know, in that league in terms of power. She, she just plays that logical down the middle on the green game that's pretty easy to learn, really. Not much can go wrong with it, but Jessica's got a much bigger, stronger game, and perhaps that takes a little longer to learn how to manage that and get it all together. And but Right. As you say... But because I, th- I, I really think we kind of get lost in the fact that Jessica is really young herself. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, she's a kid, yeah. Well, we yeah. do, don't we, Jude? With a lot of these players, they really are very young people. We've just kind of got used to them. Do you think that started with Tiger? It kind of feels to me that the expectation on people at a much earlier age started with Tiger. At 21, he did these amazing things. And since then, we've kind of expected and we've had people step up young and keep... You know, Jordan Spieth, as Jeff and I were just talking about it before we started recording, at 20 years old, is already a tour winner. President's Cup captain's right. pick at 20 years old. So we keep expecting it because the one in a million keeps delivering, don't they? Yeah, but they, but a Jordan Spieth and and Lydia Ko and all these people, um, they are extraordinary in their own right. But there is not a parade of people right behind them. There there may be a player, mm. but there is not, um, uh, you know, that that that. They're they're not going to be replicated um, in great numbers really soon. No, well, that's which is why they stand out there, especially when we talk about them on shows like this. Judy, I wanted to come to television. Of course, you had uh, a very strong career in golf, as I said, twenty six wins, twice a LPGA player, LPGA player of the year. But since I think about nineteen eighty four, eighty five, I think you you came to television. Tell us how that came about and your experience with television and covering golf. I imagine you must spend an extraordinary amount of time researching and keeping up with the game. Well. Um, it came about because I was um, my health was very bad. I had really serious back problems, and um, my golf was um, completely deteriorated. And I was just I, I was just having um, I had a probably a three year period where I should have not been playing, and I was trying to play. And um, I finally realized that 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 was over, and. Um, I uh, I got a call. I I did a I had a procedure done to my back, which um, I don't even think they do it anymore. But it was an injection procedure and all this. And in fact, I actually got worse. Uh, but I had a call to work at the Women's Open and work on the golf course. Uh, you know the way Bob Rosberg did, and. Um, I, I'd always thought TV would be great, but I didn't think I was very well suited for it because I couldn't stand up in front of two people and talk. And um, What, shy, Judy? You're, you're shy, you mean? Uh, you know, I had gone back and forth. I'd been president of the LPGA and done different things where I had to speak and I could, but I had gone... I had gone backwards at this point in my life, and I just couldn't. And I think playing so poorly near the end of my career and this and that all kind of took me backwards in a lot of ways. 
But I had this chance in TB, and I, you know, knee-jerk reaction said, yes, I would try. And so I went to the Women's Open, and um, uh, and it and it went from there. And, and one thing I learned um, um, early on about it was I, I believe that I made it in TB because initially I didn't have to look in the camera. <laughs> And I could just kind of stand, lean against a tree and talk. And um, I think it saved me, and I think it helped me to have this career. So uh, I, uh, it, and it was just a year later that I was asked to work at the Men's Open in 1985. And that was really the thing that made television for me, the fact that I was um, um, accepted into men's golf. In 1988, um, ABC Sports signed a big contract with the PGA Tour, and we did a lot of golf. And um, at this point, in fact, it was Bob Rosberg who came to me. In eight. Then I, in the meantime, I had conventional surgery on my back and um, really quite successfully, really, really helped me. But I knew I couldn't go back to playing. And um, Bob Rosberg came to me and he said, you know, they're, gonna, they're doing three times as many tournaments as they've been doing, and they're going to have to hire people. And if you're not going back to playing and you want to do this, you need to go tell them. <laughs> and so I mustered up all my nerve, and I went and said, you know, if you're going to hire people, I'd like to work. And I've been working in television ever since. Was that a turning point in kind of life, Judy? I imagine it could be quite depressing to lose your game, having been a successful professional player, to lose your game, have three years of what must be quite embarrassing and humiliating to not play as well as you know, and then a surgery that doesn't work and I imagine have some sort of pain and discomfort and that sort of thing. Things might have looked pretty bleak about then. Did television in some ways turn that around on a more general basis than just golf for you? Oh, you know, the um, the second career in television has been huge for me um, for a lot of reasons. Um, but when things went south and things were so difficult, um, yeah, I, I think I was on the verge of a nervous breakdown. Um, and I, I remember one day I called my husband, Yippee, and I, um, I, was, I was just at my wit's end. And he normally would tell me, you know, to buck up and, you know, this, that, and the other and whatever, whatever, but he didn't. He said, come home. And, um, and I did. And that was, um, that, that I really needed that right then. That's serious. And I real I realized doing the dishes, you know, a few days later that, um, uh, I was really liking not winning or losing today. Hmm. Uh, I needed I, I needed um, something different, and my son was getting ready to start high school, and it all turned out just as a blessing. Mm. So, and then I got the job in TV, and my family loved that I was getting a chance to do that, and you know they were with me some here and there, and we've had great experiences, and um, uh, the experience I've had doing television, I just uh, I. I, I can't, can't tell you how lucky I feel and how much fun I've had and how much I've learned. And um, it just, the only thing that would have been better is if the two careers would have been reversed. Mm. You think you would have been a better player now having watched all this golf that you've watched? I think I'd have been a better player. I think I'd have understood the golf swing a little better. And I think, I know I would have... I know I would have done some things differently and done them better 
because I've seen what it looks like when you don't. <laughs> mm. Judy, I just wanted to go back, and I think Clates has touched on this before. He talked about we talked about Seve once, Clates. I remember you saying just the pressure on him, week in and week out, as the number one player in the world and the sort of the showcase of the game for all of Europe, amongst not just the fans but amongst his peers as well, those who who played on the tour. You said something really interesting there, Judy, about I'm really enjoying not having to win or lose today, where it doesn't sort of matter. Just try and touch on some of the the pressure that I mean, we. We have fun about at golfers' expense. They don't play very much. You know, get paid a lot of money to do not a whole lot. But what's the flip side of that? What is that pressure like? Is it sounds like it's kind of a gnawing thing that never goes away? Does, is Tiger Woods even when he's not playing? Is he ever not under pressure of some sort? Is that what it's like? Well, you know, I, I mean, pressure becomes part of your life, and some people handle it better than others, and some people um, actually thrive on it. You know, from my part. There are those now who are going to disagree with me. But for my part, I don't think by nature I'm a totally competitive person. Um, That's not to say that when I was backed into a corner or that when, you know, I was going to go play against someone that I wasn't competitive. But I I don't need sort of anything competitive to make me happy. It's not, it doesn't have to be part of my life. And I think some very competitive people, um, that's just part of their their personality and their core. And I was, I was more um, competitive because I had to be, not so much because I wanted to be. Um, and um, so in, in, in that regard, it, it's a little bit different kind of pressure. There are people who actually live for the pressure. I think Suzanne Pedersen mm-hmm. loves the pressure. I think when the pressure is on, she is at her very best, whether she wins or loses, just the way she deals with things and all. You kind of, it's intriguing to watch her. I mean, we know that about Tiger, uh, and, and we know that about a lot of people. But um, um, in my case, I think I was a little bit different. I'm sure there are some people out there like me, um, and what I'm saying is it doesn't mean you can't compete. It just means that it doesn't drive your life. Maybe not as natural as for some, because television's competitive as well, isn't it, Judy? It's probably a little bit different coming to it as a career being a former player, but it's still a competitive landscape, isn't it? There's any number of former players could get a television job. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, where it's really competitive, those though, with those professional broadcasters, those people who are the anchors and those people who... Um, really understand broadcasting. This is, you know, what happened to me is I felt the first three or four years I was just a guest, more or less, even though I was actually working. Um, When you're a former player or an ex-jock, kind of as people are called who played the sport, it doesn't seem as though you are um, the employee with a job and so on and so forth. But, you know, when, when that that year that was the crossover when we started doing so many PGA Tour events and all um, was kind of the difference where I realized I was no longer, you know, just a guest hanging around talking about golf a little bit, but I had a real job. Mm. And um, it's, you know, it's pretty much been a real job ever since, although I'm treated extremely well. I have no complaints. <laughs> I'm sure not. Uh, yeah, sure. Judy, uh, one of the things that, that, people love about your announce style, especially when you were an on-course reporter. Um, and maybe it was partially a contrast with Bob Rosberg, who was great in his own way, but probably more entertaining, is you you were able to just 
get in and out so quickly and give the, all the key information. And and if the announcers asked the question, you'd pop back with an answer. And I, I've always had trouble understanding how on-course reporters do that without a monitor and being in the flow of the telecast. But I'm curious how you um, how how you developed your style, and did you did you have anybody? working with you or was it something that where you were just kind of thrown out there and, and had to learn on the job? Um, I was just kind of thrown out there, but the job was so much smaller. Mm. You know, pretty much the first time I worked, the first time I spoke on TV when I was actually working, Jim McKay asked me a question, mm. which I was able to answer. And <laughs> it's and it's not like that today. Mm. Today, if you start an on-course commentary, you know, you there's a space in the rhythm of things that is carved out for you. You take over and you talk and this and the other. Well, Rossi also, but certainly me, we grew into that as the as the role grew. And so with each little step where the role for the on course commentator grew, um, we were already there. And it but now I think it's very I think it's much harder for people now because you know, you jump in the first day and you have this big role and you have all these people talking in your ear mm. and you're, you know, you're trying to get yardages straight and um, this, that, and the other. And so it's, I think it's harder, it's, it's much harder to start today. Now, I don't know, maybe easier to be good because you have that, that bigger role. But mm. um, it is, you, you, we find in television, I think all producers, I think everybody in TV would tell you this, there are a lot of people who come to TV um, who have the knowledge and the information and speak well and should be able to do it, but for some reason they can't because it just never clicks with how the rhythm of all this works mm. and all the things that might be going on in your headset and um, so on and so forth. So um, there's there's some little component that makes it work for some people. Um, you know, I took... Um, I took Dottie to the U.S. Amateur the first time she ever worked in TV, and I just had a feeling Dottie would get it. Yeah. And I guess, you know, everybody knows Dottie got it. Yeah, so, she's amazing. Um, yeah. And, and, and what, that, what that little component is that makes you understand the way it works, I, I can't say because I grew into it. I don't know if I would have been somebody who would have gotten it immediately. Mm. Now, I mean, you said Rossi. I just have to ask. Now, did... did did it become a shtick later in the in his career where he'd say somebody would just have no shot, or did he really believe that? Because it became kind of fun, like he would just stumble on the ball and go, "He's just got Curtis. He's got nothing here," and the guy would pull off the shot. And was, was well, did no, he have fun it, well, with it, that, or was was that just his? No, he his did. It was a little bit of both. I mean, it was certainly it was um, his signature line, but. Yeah. Uh, um, but he did believe it at the time because he never right. he didn't he didn't want to be wrong. I can promise you. That. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, no, he was great. You know, they'd come to him and say, "Well, Rossi, the wind seems to really be getting up out there," and he'd say, "Yeah, it's about two miles an hour." <laughs> so no, he was great, and um, um, uh, you know, he sort of was kind of this old curmudgeon guy. Everybody thought, but um, I would tell you, he he might have been the very first really liberated guy because he mm. you know he wanted me to be able to do that he wanted me to be able to make it he he helped me in every way he ever could you know he told me when he thought i said something really wrong or stupid mm. and um and he'd tell me when i had a good day 
And um, he was just a guy who he wouldn't care who did the job if they did the job well. And that was yeah. one of the n- nice things about Rossi that people didn't know. So, mm. Sort of a mentor by the sound of it, Judy, to you in this second career of yours? Uh, for sure. For sure. He, um, um, Rossi, Rossi um, what, you know, always kind of had my back for things and I could count on him and I could, I could go to him for a favor. And, you know, in all honesty, one of the <clears throat> great things about my entire television career is I just worked with really good men. And um, uh, it, it was, you know, the education from these guys and the friendship and um, the fact that, that they uh, were, were happy to see me make it. And it was never confrontational. Had it been, I would not have made it. I can tell you that. I would have come home again. <laughs> <laughs> now, today I can stand up for myself a little bit better, but... Um, it's still not what's important to me. Do you miss the on-course reporting? Well, I do that little bit of men's golf, you know, a couple, three times a year is all. And um, it's funny because if you've ever played, you, you do fall right back into that. And um, uh, and and it is fun. And, uh, you know, in, in every role in TV, I think you can get emotionally invested in people's games and what's going on. But when you're out there um, in the fairway watching people, you really can. And uh, uh, you can just kind of get a wry smile on your face when they hit some extraordinary shot. Or Mm. um, you can, you know, feel your own heart sink when they uh, are giving it away. Mm. I'm just going to cut in there, Judy, because... um Jeff's just reminded me through the wonders of technology on my screen here. We must uh, just quickly mention something here. Uh, Audible, who uh, who have come on board the, sh- the podcast, is a bit of a sponsor, Judy. They do audio books. But, Jeff, um, I think you have for us a, uh, a book that you're going to tell us about this week. We, we just discussed one of the books that uh, Audible has available each week, Judy, just very quickly. So I think Jeff's got one for us this week. Shaq, what, okay. have, you, uh, what have you got? Is it um, – I've lost my notes here. Are you still with us? I'm I'm very much here. Yes, I was just uh, wondering. You know, yeah, sorry, uh, my apologies. I'm, I was I'm, just listening to you transition so artfully to our. We don't advertise uh, a lot on this show, Judy. So this is a new thing. But I'm not uh, good. I'm not good at it, as you can tell. We're we're uh, I'm a uh, Audible Books is our uh, our sponsor, and I'm a huge fan of uh, of audio books. Uh, I used to read a lot of books. I really don't read books that often anymore. And and. Uh, and uh, I love audiobooks, so when you're walking or, or driving. And uh, last week I r- uh, recommended uh, Harvey Penick's Little Red Book, which Jack Whitaker reads, uh, who you know very well, Judy. But uh, uh, the book this week, I know Clates has read, and it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a masterpiece. It was written in 1908, and it still holds up today, which is kind of incredible for a, for a golf book. It's called The Mystery of Golf. By Arnold Haltane, uh, 1908. Um, he was British. He was brilliant. His other books. He was a romantic. He wrote Hints for Lovers, uh, Two Country Walks in Canada, which sounds like something Dan Jenkins would would come up as a as a spoof title for a uh, for a book. Uh, and then the glorious Mystery of Golf. And it's a book that you you read it. It's brilliant. The, he uses words you can't believe. Um, but actually hearing somebody read it, uh, and I've been listening to it knowing that I was going to recommend it this week because I could not believe Audible had it on their list of golf books because it's a pretty obscure title. Uh, yeah. hearing, hearing somebody read it, it's just totally cool. So it's, uh, 
it's an amazing book, kind of a, a, about the romance and, and uh, of the game, and and um, and then the mystery of the game, as the title uh, mentions. How, uh, Clates, have you read the mystery of golf? I've read most of it. It's um, introduced to me by Mac O'Grady. Oh, yeah, wow! I, why does that not sh- shock me? Yeah. <laughs> Mac O'Grady's favorite book in golf. So that will, yeah, yeah. there's some tremendous stuff in there. And, and I didn't realize it was on that, so I must get it. But it yeah. yeah, it's it's actually easier to take in listening to it on the audiobook than yeah. it is trying to read it because he does use, like I said, he uses some some pretty big words. But hearing somebody else uh, read it is uh, is you're able to kind of sit back and just take it in a little bit more. Fantastic. Now, if you you can actually download this for free if you go to uh, audiblepodcast.com backslash SOG. That's S for state, O for G. Uh, o for of G for game. That's our our special little URL. You sign up there if you're in the US and Canada. You sign up there for a, a free trial, and you get one free audio book download. So you can download. What was it called? The Glorious Mystery of Golf. No, the Mystery of oh, the Golf. The Mystery of Golf. Arnold you think Holtain. it's glorious by Arnold Holtain? You can yeah. download that. So that's audiblepodcast.com/slash S for state O for of G for game, and that's our little ad. Are you a book reader, Judy? Have you got some favourite golf books that uh, you've read or listened to over the years? Are you an audio book listener? Maybe you are. Uh, you know, I have driving because it's good for me because I um, tend to fall asleep. And so, <laughs> yeah, not recommended. I, I, audio books are um, a good way to, to keep your interest. Um, but I have never listened to a golf book on, on audio. So that would be interesting. And, um, there you go. You can get a free so I, I had not book. until recently either. So it's okay. Yeah, I have a book that somebody just gave me that I've heard a lot about and I haven't read um, called The Match. And um, it's it, uh, and I, I, probably most golfers um, know what it's about, but um, it takes place out um, um, in California, and I I need to sit down and read that, and I have not thoroughly recommend it, Judy. It is a fabulous read. The match, a truly uh, truly fabulous read. You're a voracious reader, Clates. What are some of your golf picks that Judy well, would be able to, to I'm read or listen? Rereading Kurt Sampson's The Eternal Summer. Mm. which is the story of the summer of 1960 and really the U.S. Open at Cherry Hills with Hogan and Nicholas and speaking about 20-year-old phenomenons, I mean, Nicholas was a 20-year-old amateur who really could have won the U.S. Open that year. But I, I'm stuck on a page here, Judy, talking about the LPGA. Prize money in 1959 was $202,500, but in 1960... It fell to 186,700, which is they're pretty staggering numbers when you for the, consider that. For what, the year, Clates, are you talking? For the year. For the whole year. For, for the whole year. Second place now, isn't oh. it, Judy? Gentlemen, I hate to tell you this, but in my entire career, I never won a million dollars. For your whole career? And so I, I, I thank heaven and everyone else for television. Well, yeah. Well, look, we as viewers uh, thank television for you too, because I, I think you're one of the the best commentators. About you touched on this a bit, Judy, and we were we were talking about TV, and you mentioned this. What was it like to be a woman to step into essentially, a, quote unquote, a man's world of golf in the '80s, and not just amongst the production crew? You've already said were fabulous, and Bob Rosberg was a mentor. What about the players? How were you accepted, and were you nervous about that at all? Oh, do you think I was nervous? <laughs> 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 um, I was I was um, beside myself nervous, and not just with players, but I I 
you know, suddenly the third golf tournament I ever did in my life was the U.S. Open, um, 1985 in Michigan. And um, I I, I couldn't really imagine that I was there. Um, Fuzzy Zeller was was the defender. And Fuzzy um, was going to work for ABC. And just a couple of weeks before the Open, before the U.S. Open, he decided his back was good enough to play and he wanted to defend. So now they wanted another on-course commentator. And apparently the conversation went something like, well, we don't want to take somebody at the U.S. Open who has never done it before. And the only person who has done it before is Judy. And I got the call, which um, um, at the time, Frank Hannigan was the executive director of the USGA, and he had to... uh, um, you know, give his okay on that. So, I mean, it was just, you know, amazing that I even got the chance to do it. And then I was just completely frightened to death. But um, somehow I I did what I was supposed to do, and it turned out. And uh, players, I would say, um, there were some players that I knew, certainly, and um, some players that I didn't know. uh, But uh, the vast majority were really um, great to me and gave me access early on. Uh, I, I always say that there were a very few in the, the first few times I worked who they, it's kind of like when you bring a new puppy into the house and the dog that you have just sort of looks through the puppy like it's not there. And I had that feeling from just a few players that they just did not acknowledge the fact that I was there. But that was um, so so few players and so short-lived uh and i have always given a lot of credit to the pga tour players at at some point they um early on decided i was presenting what they did fairly and they were always um um, right with me and um you can't do that on course job without thanking the caddies because you know caddies can make or break that job and um i had a, a a lot of guys who um you know, did what I needed them to do. Can you clarify for me, Judy? You know, when, when they when they do the clubs, is it there's some sort of finger signal, signal isn't there, not that the caddies give the on-course reporters and that's how they know what club is? Is it three fingers down? Is. Is, how does that work? Can you explain that to me? Because I've tried to explain it to people and realised halfway through I actually don't understand how it works. Like what the signals are? Yeah, what are the signals? How do they work? So you're on-course well, what's if, the signal? if your hand is straight up and you do two, three, four, that's a two, three, four iron and so mm-hmm. on and so forth, um, a five iron, um, I'm trying to think what, a, I guess a five iron is just a five iron. But then when you put your hand down, okay, if I put two fingers down, that's a seven iron. Right. If I put one finger down, that's a six iron. Four fingers down is a nine iron. Because a five is a the key number. A fifth is a pitching wedge. Five. Right, okay. Um, and it's a whole series of things. And they used to, it used to just be the on-course commentator and the caddy. Well, there was a point in time when there were issues about sharing information and this and that, and then they decided that you couldn't do that anymore. And that was kind of short-lived, too. But what happened is, with with all the um, graphics in television now, um, every on-course commentator has somebody with them who has a radio, and they are radioing back yardages and so on. That's how they come up on your screen. And um, so, so that guy, and um, I have a guy who's been with me for 15 years. Um, his name's Byron Trinidad. And um, so that guy then becomes your go-between. And so he's given you the signal that the caddy gives him. 
So the caddy and, talks um, to your caddy, and then your caddy gives you the information. That's right. That, <laughs> that I've got a caddy. <laughs> the player's assistant then speaks to my assistant, and we uh, discuss having lunch. <laughs> your, your people talk to their people. That's that's yeah. uh, fascinating. What goes on behind the scenes? Because, of course, we watch a television broadcast, and it all looks so smooth and seamless, doesn't it? Of course, it, there's nothing at all tense happening behind the scenes. Is there, Judy? It's all very smooth I and think, simple. I, you know, I know a little bit about it, but it, it's I marvel at what they do. Mm. and how everything coordinates together and how a a good producer has what I don't know what to call it but a very organized mind and um they they just have things in order and um when when a golf tournament comes down to really being exciting and you know actions happening in eight different places on the golf course they keep it in some sort of order to tell the story and um uh, the the producer is um, is brilliant in golf television, and uh, they really have to have they have some kind of job. They now they have two or three people backing them up. Don't get me wrong; I don't think you could do it completely alone. Um, but they are the final decision maker, and it's 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 the way they perceive it is the way you are told the story. Of course, the the field is so large, isn't it, Judy? And the number of players involved is, I mean, football and tennis, and they're all very simple. They're contained in rectangular or square or circular, but but the golf course is such an enormous place with so many people at any given time doing something just right. to try to keep up. Yeah. is takes, yeah, and it, to, takes an effort. And then uh, somebody will be upset because they didn't see a particular shot live, but they, you know, they don't take into consideration that Five shots were be playing were played at exactly the same time. Yeah, maybe ten. Yeah. Uh, quite, yeah. quite uh, yeah. quite possibly. You mentioned uh, Frank Hannigan there in the USGA. Um, tell me a bit about sort of that. I imagine you must have come to know the people at the USGA and and some of the the great stalwarts of that organisation. Well, um, to a degree, of course. Um, uh, after Frank Hannigan, of course, David Fay was there for a long time, and um, now he's been retired for a while. And um, I I know Mike Davis reasonably well. Um, I, um, I I you know I I think Mike Davis has um, kind of I think he's done a really good job at modernizing what happens um, at the U.S. Open and um, making those um, little tweaks to golf courses that have sort of modernize um, the look and the way guys um, play. Uh, I, I, like his, I like his idea of changing up the golf course um, to make players really think. I think sometimes, I think there's a risk of going too far with that. I think if you do it on a hole or two a day, that's plenty. Maybe, maybe one hole, um, you know, once a day, I, I think there's the risk of people getting so creative that you're just not playing the same golf course. But I do like the idea of making players um, think a little bit and, and adjusting a course, just tweaking it a little bit to get your attention. Um, and that, that's all pretty much Mike Davis in, in recent times. Um, you know, they've got a pretty interesting thing going on next year. The men's open and the women's open are going to be played at Pinehurst back to back weeks. So it's, it's, it sounds like a great spectacular, and it may be, but there are there are some things that it will be interesting to see how it works out. You'd be nervous uh, about it, wouldn't you? Clayton, yeah, sorry. I, can I ask, I'd like to ask Judy on that. Uh, I, I've had a, the view that, that it will not be a success 
because the women are going second. And, and it's nothing against the women. It just seemed to me like the, the better way to, to, to build it into a, uh, something they do every few years would be to have the women go first. So a lot of people arrive Thursday, Friday before, watch the women's conclusion, and then stay for the men. I, I'm having a hard time, because of where Pinehurst is, seeing a lot of people hang around after the men's tournament. Whereas if they were in somebody somewhere like San Diego where it's a little easier to get to and there are more hotels, that this this sequencing might have worked. Have you, do you have a view on that? Um, well, I have thought that the golf course would take less damage if the women played first. Yeah. Um, but I I think you have a really good idea. I don't think it's ever going to happen. Yeah. I think I think there's a little bit of a pecking order there, yeah. and um, uh, I, I I would agree with you, but I just don't envision that happening. Yeah. Um, I, I I would have concerns about you know the all the volunteers that it takes, and and are people going to want to do that two weeks in a row, or can you get two sets of volunteers that many people? Right. Especially um, yeah, there. Yeah. So I mean, it's things like that, and it's things like. You know, when the when the concept was first kind of being talked about, um, the men, the women weren't hitting the ball quite so far. Yeah. And now we've got we've got more than a handful of women who are hitting the ball a long, long way. We've got we've got a handful of women who are hitting it kind of with the bottom third of the PGA Tour. Amazing. It's great. And I think it's going to be harder to set up a golf course um, right behind the U.S. Open, uh, where you don't, where you're not, where driving areas aren't the damaged areas, mm. and this and that. If you're going to play, have the holes play similarly, like if 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 a guy hit a seven iron into a, into a green, are you trying to set it up where a woman might hit a similar club? Now, it could be that they're going to use dramatically different tees so that those areas never come into play. I just don't know. But um, surely there are issues with it. And um, I've seen golf courses, we've all seen golf courses, all of us, after um, a U.S. Open championship, and it is pretty beat up. Yeah. And if you have weather, it is really beat up. Um, but this, um, that whole Sand Hills area, I, I guess would be the best place to try it. Yeah, well, we'll find out soon enough. Um, now, you know, for the kind of, for the kind of, um, for the way a golf course um, is manicured and all, because that golf course is less manicured than many. Yeah. It's also wider, which is going to yes. help. Um, they've yeah. widened it out, thankfully, since the last Open there. Um, It'll be interesting for sure. Yeah. Now, and then one you other, know, next year oh. the 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 women's British Open is the week before the Open Championship, oh. and they're only about fifty miles apart. It's Birkdale and Hoylake, mm. so it's an interesting year for men and women's golf. Hopefully, huh. you don't have any of the divot problems you'll have at Pinehurst that you were referring to, though, with the Open Judy being fifty miles apart. If they, I don't think <laughs> yeah, you will. won't be playing right, out right. Of divots <laughs> with a bit of luck. Sorry, Jeff, uh, I interrupted. Yeah, I want to ask Judy one other thing. Um, you know, you're you're in television, and you also live in Texas, uh, so you you know about college football, and and uh, I don't know how closely you follow it, but I'm sure you are aware. Of the New York Times recently had a an, a really interesting behind the scenes story on ESPN, and how they've revolutionized revolutionized the 
college football for certain programs by putting them on Thursday nights and Tuesday nights. And um, one of the things that's been talked about a lot for the LPGA Tour is to see them conclude more tournaments on either a Saturday or a Monday or even something as um, extreme as a, uh, a, a Tuesday or a Wednesday. Um, I'm curious, having been on both sides of the uh, of the the uh, the microphone and out on the course and what you think of Mike Wan and whether that's um, something that he should entertain with because uh, I know the Golf Channel would love to to have the uh, show the L- showcase the LPGA on days other than Sunday. Well, I think it's a very worthy experiment. I think the the hardest part is. Um, it starts out as an experiment, and to get it into people's consciousness mm. um, will take some time. Um, but I do. I, I, I think. I think there's. I, I. I think there's a lot of merit to it. And um, uh, you know, one thing that was talked about was if if tournaments finished on Saturday, um, you know, you could play the pro am golf on Sunday, mm. which would suit a lot of people. A lot of people would love that, um, yeah. you know, with their work schedules, with this, that, and the other. Um, there's just there's there's a lot of way there's a lot of things to experiment with, but it's it's then how quickly do you get it into the real viewers? consciousness that women's golf does this men's golf does this women's golf doesn't do this when it's a major championship yeah so it's tricky it is it's very tricky um do you have these discussions sort of at the network judy do you get asked your opinion about you know because for television i mean the the better they can make the product the more uh potentially oh well certainly i mean the golf channel and the lpga to a degree are partners so um they have these discussions Mm -hmm. I don't know that this one has, um, you know, really been taken very seriously, but it has come up, you know, it comes up often. Um, I do know that the LPGA has, uh, they've done well a few times. Um, For instance, I want to say that Hawaii, uh, the Lote Championship, is one that ends on Saturday. And so it ends on Saturday, and it's in prime time in the East. And that, that is a, that's a, really um a good week for the golf channel and for the lpga it ends on saturday because um it's a oh please don't let me be wrong here (laughs) but it's an asian sponsor and um uh the timing works so it works out it works out for them for them and i just i'm sorry but i just can't think right off the top of my head if it's Japanese or Korean. That's that's okay. You you must. Um, and I hope they'll forgive me, but you do, I can't. You do enough Thursday to Sunday where you're not allowed to get. It's a different sort of pressure to the golf course, isn't it? Television. You're not allowed to be wrong on the air, are you? It's, you've got to be very careful. You no, know? no. And 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 they also don't like it if you say I think they <laughs> they want you to they want you to say it like you know. And I now know that Lotte is a Korean company because I just looked it up real quickly because I'm embarrassed. Isn't technology Because um, they're a great sponsor. That's right. Um, but uh, so it is beneficial for them to to end on Saturday, and that's what has made that work out. Um, but it's a that's a that's a good weekend for the LPGA. 
um, prime time and finishes on Saturday mm. night. Certainly, uh, mm. perhaps something to consider. Judy, there's a million things I want to ask you about. I've just noticed how long we've been talking for. It feels like 10 minutes, but it's been quite a deal longer than that. I can assure you, you touched on something earlier that I really did want to ask you about. It's, it's something we talk about a lot on this show and that Jeff gets a lot of discussion about on his website. Distance and modern equipment and the golf ball and that whole, you know, there's a million threads in that alone. But the whole impact of modern equipment and distance, perhaps on both the women's and the men's games. Do you, do, what, what, what's your take on particularly, firstly, the men's game and then perhaps the women's game? And, and, and what do you see, good, bad, or just different, the modern game, to what you grew up playing? Well, I think it's just different. And um, I, I, I think for today's game and today's power and today's ability to do things with the ball, um, for that to make a lot of really wonderful golf courses obsolete is kind of silly that you know there has to be a way and i think you what they probably learned it with marion um if if not many other times but there has to be a way that those courses are not um you know obsolete and uh sometimes it just takes maybe two new tees on a golf course um sometimes it uh you know maybe takes just um a little little manicuring difference and start making some greens a little bit smaller, um, those kinds of things. So I think that uh, I think it's a little overblown to talk about all the golf courses that don't matter anymore because really and truly we're talking about maybe at best a couple thousand players in the game who hit it too far. Most everybody else is still trying to hit it far enough. Uh, so... You know, that's that's my take on that that basically concerns men's golf. And um, when they talk about taking the golf ball back 10% or whatever, um, and people say, well, everybody would be hitting it 10% shorter. It's not like one person would be and no one else would be. Well, I understand that, but I don't. I, I think if you're trying to sell the game as a fan sport, that would really, really hurt the game. And I will tell you, it would really hurt women's golf, really hurt women's golf, because um, the the fascination people do have with some of these, you know, small young women who can drive the ball, you know, 265. I don't, I don't want to see that change. I really don't. And um, once again, I would say, almost everybody who plays the game needs to hit it farther, not shorter. So the I am. I had a conversation with a rep from TaylorMade the other day, and I said the best thing that ever happened to golf would be if they invented a ball that could go further for women. And he said, oh, we can do that. And it's like, I mean, for me, it's like drag the ball back for the best place. But, boy, if someone, I mean, you know, working on designing golf courses and trying to make trying to make the mix between how far Adam Scott hits it and how far a 36 handicap woman hits it, boy, if they could make a ball that went further for the average woman, that would be the greatest thing for golf ever. I think. But you, yeah, but you know, um, it, um, it's just like this the golf ball that goes so far for um, tour players. Um, it goes so far for them because of club head speed. Yeah, and you yeah. put you put the same golf ball in somebody else's hand, and there's very little difference in what they've always known, if any. And I don't think they can, you know, sadly, they can't make this trickle down. If they could, they would really be genius. Well, that was kind of my point, but I'm, I'm in this goal as a salesman, I understand. 
he was saying, he, he said, we could make a ball that went further for women. We could change the dimples. We could make it lighter or heavier or whatever. And, I, I, and I'm talking about, you know, women who, you know, I guess the, so many who play who don't carry the ball more than 120 yards in the air. If you could somehow make a ball for that group of players that went further, it would be a, it would make the ball the game so much more fun to. Right. Any. Yeah. Well, I don't. I don't know if that is in the offing, but it would be interesting to see for sure. Judy, the the distances we see the professional women hit the ball these days are probably comparable to where we saw the professional men hitting it maybe twenty or thirty years ago. As you say, some get out there two ninety mm-hmm. for a few of them, but you know, probably on average for the most part, two sixty to two eighty yards in that range for uh, for sort of the top players in the game. Is golf on most golf courses, and particularly on classic golf courses, a more interesting game? when players hit the ball that far. I remember when we watched the Women's Open at Royal Melbourne a couple of years ago, the one that Jessica Corder won that, that Clates mentioned earlier, it was fabulous to see that. When we watched the men at the President's Cup, it was a totally different spectacle because of the distances they hit the ball. The golf course really lent itself to playing from yardages more in line with where the top women hit it. In that way, has women's golf maybe got more of a potential as a fan spectacle? It seems to me that men's golf has become almost like men's tennis. It's just a power game. Serve, ace, move yeah. to the next point. Well, surely the fan, I would think, must say, particularly, you know, the guy. And when I look at, when I look at the um, um, galleries, um, I think the makeup of galleries is not dramatically different. Um, there may be a few more women watching women's golf, but you know what? Most of the people watching women's golf are men. Just like when you go to a, a men's tournament, it's mostly men, some women, and a few kids. And it's pretty much the same um, at LPGA events. Maybe you know, maybe there's 10% more women. I don't know, but um, when I think of you know the the 40 year old guy who is watching the women play, if he if he is um, a golfer, um, and and maybe you know he can't imagine you know playing like Tiger, but I believe he can imagine um, you know playing like Stacy Lewis. I think, and that's why I think there there could be and is in some cases such a fascination with the women who are really good. Um, I look at a little a little person, a little player like I K Kim. Or a little player like I Miyazato, um, um, I was considered small, and and I was a lightweight when I played. Um, but these people are five feet two inches tall. <laughs> and, silly, isn't it? Really? And I mean, you know, they they really can play the game. And I would, I, I'd take them against an awful lot of people who think they're good. Mm. Well, yes, most of us forty-year-old men think we hit it. 300 yards don't <laughs> we right we, yeah we, we and the other thing other. is yeah there's something in the golfer brain where you know you think you hit it 260 but the truth was you <laughs> hit it 232 there's no room for um, truth judy don't stand and that's across the, the board everybody yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's right we're all uh, we're all guilty of it judy it's been yeah. fantastic to talk to you we've taken more of your time than i meant to and as i said i could happily sit here for the rest of the day chatting to you. it's been wonderful to hear your voice and some of your your thoughts on the game we really thank you for taking the time to chat to us today 
Well, thank you. I enjoyed it very much. I hope it was useful. Oh, and um, I you... look forward to seeing you somewhere along the way, all of you. Absolutely. Would you come all back? Right, perhaps, thanks, we could have, perhaps we could have a family affair, Judy. You and Jeff Ogilvy. We forgot to mention, of course, that you're practically Jeff's aunt, aren't you? Somebody's married into well, somebody's family there. You... <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what I am to Jeff, but we, I call him my pseudo-relative. Um, he, Jeff and my son are married to sisters. Okay, there you so, go. So um, uh, we are related, and his... Uh, his kids somehow think I'm like a third grandmother, so um, it all works out just fine. <laughs> lucky lucky then. Well, we've had Jeff on the show. We might try and get the two of you together. Fantastic. Appreciate you t- t- taking the time, Judy. Thank you all very, very much. Not at all. And thank you to uh, to Clates and Shaq as well. Been fabulous to have you blokes aboard as always. Hope you enjoyed chatting with Judy. Oh, it was great. Thank you, Rod. Yeah. And that wraps it up for State of the Game, episode 28. Hope you've enjoyed it. We'll be back again in a couple of weeks to do it all again. Looking forward to your company then on State of the Game. State of the Game is a Talk and Golf production. Theme music, Writer's Retreat, provided by Lloyd Cole. Visit www.lloydcole.com for more information. For more golf podcasts, log on to www.talkandgolf.com.